0: podcast where we are up to chapter 15 of The Beginning of Infinity, titled The Evolution of Culture. Here in this chapter, what we're learning about is a number of quite new ways in which David Deutsch approaches the spread of ideas. What we're going to talk about in particular are what are known as memes, memes. Now, a meme is a technical term for an idea that tends to get itself replicated, that tends to get itself copied so that it spreads through different minds, through different people. Now, this idea of a meme, for anyone who's new to this, is somewhat different to the idea of a meme that appears on the internet. Although memes that appear on the internet, those funny things, those funny cartoons that are shared between people, they are themselves memes of a kind. But when we talk about memes, when we speak about memes, we're speaking about a much broader category of ideas. And David's going to really refine not only what our understanding of memes are, the mental or abstract analog of a gene. We're not only going to refine our understanding of what that is, but importantly for him, in the central, one of the central themes of the beginning of infinity is how it is that memes are replicated. Under what conditions do they tend to get replicated? And under what conditions do they not tend to get replicated? And what is the process by which they get replicated? Now, this centrality of the idea of memes for the beginning of infinity I've touched on before with respect to how it is brought up in the beginning of infinity. One important way in which it comes up in the beginning of infinity is the discussion of, and the distinction between, static versus dynamic societies. As I often do sometimes in these podcasts, I do tend to steal the thunder of the main point that's coming later. And I'm about to do that now. So let me preface everything that we're about to talk about with the idea that perhaps there can be no greater civilizational challenge than to ensure that we become dynamic societies and avoid being static societies. That this is the one fundamental thing which can ensure either you will definitely go extinct as a civilization or you have the potential to have an unbounded, open-ended future of knowledge creation before you. The distinction rests upon whether or not The culture is saturated with anti-rational memes. Anti-rational memes are memes that tend to disable the capacity of their holders to criticise themselves. So if you feel as though there are ideas in your society that you may not criticise, and therefore may not seek improvement of, then this can tend to slow down the rate of progress in your society. In the worst cases, it can stop progress altogether, and we can end up in a static society. And then we might even get regression, where the society moves backwards in various ways. On the other hand, if we can avoid the ideas that tend to cause us not to criticise things, then we can help to inculcate a more dynamic society, a more open-ended society, a society that welcomes criticism, a society that wants to create new things rather than remain satisfied with the status quo. Okay, so after that... Marvellous introduction! Let's get straight into the reading. And David writes at the beginning of this chapter, subtitled, Ideas That Survive. A culture is a set of ideas that cause their holders to behave alike in some ways. By ideas, I mean any information that can be stored in people's brains and can affect their behaviour. Thus, the shared values of a nation, the ability to communicate in a particular language, the shared knowledge of an academic discipline, and the appreciation of a given musical style are all, in this sense, sets of ideas that define cultures. Many of them are inexplicit. In fact, all ideas have some inexplicit component, since even our knowledge of the meanings of words is held largely inexplicitly in our minds. Physical skills, such as the ability to ride a bicycle, have an especially high inexplicit content as do philosophical concepts such as freedom and knowledge. The distinction between explicit and inexplicit is not always sharp. For instance, a poem or a satire may be explicitly about one subject, while the audience in a particular culture will reliably, and without being told, interpret it as being about a different one. The world's major cultures, including nations, languages, philosophical and artistic movements, social traditions and religions, have been created incrementally, over hundreds or even thousands of years. Most of the ideas that define them, including the inexplicit ones, have a long history of being passed from one person to another. That makes these ideas memes, ideas that are replicators. Pause there, my reflection. So already a lot has been said about this explicit and inexplicit distinction. This was made much earlier on in The Beginning of Infinity, and you can go back and look at, or hopefully you've got the book, The Beginning of Infinity. If you haven't, I urge you to go out and buy it, have a look in the index, and have a look at what the meaning is of explicit versus inexplicit. Explicit, of course, has something to do with the capacity to be able to be put into words. And so certain kinds of ideas have a highly explicit content. Scientific theories have highly explicit content. Not to say there's no inexplicit content, but it's highly explicit. A recipe for baking a cake will be highly explicit. And the more explicit it is, the better, because then you'll be able to replicate the picture of the cake that's in the recipe book. On the other hand, there's a whole bunch of ideas that have a much greater inexplicit content. And sporting skills are like this. Roger Federer, who can serve a tennis ball really, really well, uh, has knowledge of how to do that. Okay, yes, he has certain genetic propensities to be able to do that as well. But importantly, he has knowledge of how to serve the tennis ball really well, or how to return the tennis ball really, really well. And no doubt he could probably coach someone and train them so that they can improve, but it's unlikely they'll ever become as good as he is, even if their genetics was that good. People who are regarded as great geniuses in many fields have lots and lots of inexplicit knowledge. The great mathematician that I've mentioned recently, Ramanujan, he would have had a lot of inexplicit knowledge about how it is that he arrives at the theorems that he did, or how it was that he arrived at the theorems that he did. He wasn't able to explain fully what the process was that he went through. In other words, it's inexplicit. He couldn't put it into words. That doesn't mean that it is in principle impossible to put into words. It's just that he didn't know how. And so it's true of many, many other things in our lives. And when David says there that words, the definition of words has lots of inexplicit content, all you need to do is to consider trying to explain to someone who is visually impaired or completely without sight what something looks like if you try to explain what the color red looks like to someone who's never seen it before you'll suddenly it will come down on you with full force the idea that this word has lots of inexplicit content we all know to some extent what the word red means certainly when we say the sky is blue that has lots and lots of inexplicit content when we use the term blue all of us agree but to a person who's never actually seen the blue sky before, trying to explain to them what that sensation of blue is like is going to leave you floundering. You're going to realise that, that there is just a barrier, an inexplicit barrier between you and the person of trying to put into words what that feeling, that sensation, that observation, that sight is actually like. Back to the book. Most of the ideas that define them including the inexplicit ones, have a long history of being passed from one person to another. That makes these ideas memes, ideas that are replicators. Nevertheless, cultures change. People modify cultural ideas in their minds, and sometimes they pass on the modified versions. Inevitably, there are unintentional modifications as well, partly because of straightforward error and partly because inexplicit ideas are hard to convey accurately. There is no way to download them directly from one brain to another, like computer programs. Even native speakers of a language will not give identical definitions of every word, so it can be only rarely, if ever, that two people hold precisely the same cultural idea in their minds. That is why, when the founder of a political or philosophical movement, or a religion, dies, or even before, schisms typically happen the movement's most devoted followers are often shocked to discover that they disagree about what its doctrines really are. It is not much different when a religion has a holy book in which the doctrines are stated explicitly. Then there are disputes about the meanings of the words and the interpretation of the sentences. Pause there, just my brief reflection on that. This here is an interesting criticism of dogma. In fact, it's a withering criticism of dogma because it suggests that even if you were to complain, that let's say a particular holy book is the inerrant word of God, that has absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with your capacity to understand it inerrantly or your capacity to pass it on to another person inerrantly. You remain, of course, always a fallible person. So that even if you had access to the perfect knowledge, nonetheless, because you are a person, you are a human being, you are fallible, you are subject to error... Your identification of a particular work as being inerrant, as being perfect, as being coming straight from the creator of the universe has to be filtered through your mind, your imperfect mind, out into the rest of the world. So if you stand on a street corner preaching that this is the word of the Lord, well, what you have to understand is that the message that you're passing on is not perfect. The word of the Lord in the book might very well be perfect according to your lights. But that does not mean that your reading of it is perfect. You might be emphasizing things differently. In fact, the particular copy of the inerrant word of God you might have might itself be errant. It might be filled and riddled with errors. Of course, just as an aside to this, there are general purpose criticisms from the religious people of that kind of perspective. One would be that the higher being divinely inspires you and prohibits you from making any errors. However, this would be a general purpose objection that anyone could make even where two people have competing interpretations of the same inerrant word of the Lord. Back to the book. Thus a culture is in practice defined not by a set of strictly identical memes but by a set of variants that cause slightly different characteristic behaviours. Some variants tend to have the effect that their holders are eager to enact or talk about them, others less so. Some are easier than others for potential recipients to replicate in their own minds. These factors and others affect how likely each variant of a meme is to be passed on faithfully. A few exceptional variants, once they appear in one mind, tend to spread throughout the culture with very little change in meaning, as expressed in the behaviours they cause. Such memes are familiar to us because long-lived cultures are composed of them. But, nevertheless, in another sense, they are a very unusual type of idea, for most ideas are short-lived. A human mind considers many ideas for every one that it ever acts upon, and only a small proportion of those cause behaviour that anyone else notices. And of those, only a small proportion are ever replicated by anyone else. So the overwhelming majority of ideas disappear within a lifetime or less. The behaviour of people in a long-lived culture is therefore determined partly by recent ideas that will soon become extinct and partly by long-lived memes, exceptional ideas that have been accurately replicated many times in succession. Pause there, my reflection. That was extremely dense. There was a lot of information going on there, and I think it behooves us to go back and to just consider what David was saying. Essentially, the idea here is that for any individual person, an individual mind, we come up with a vast number of ideas throughout the course of any day, and only a few of them do we ever act upon. We think, hmm, maybe I should have a coffee now, but maybe we don't act on it, we just have that idea. Maybe we have the idea that, hmm, gee, I really should finish off that essay I've been writing, but never actually act on it. Maybe I think of all the different jobs in which I could do, and I only act on one of those, There's lots of ideas that remain inside a particular person's mind and never cause any outward manifestation. There's no outward sign that you ever had that idea. There's no behaviour that goes along with that idea. But for some, there is a behaviour. Sometimes you really do write the essay. Sometimes you really do take the job. Sometimes you go for the walk. Sometimes you decide to take up dancing, so on and so forth. So sometimes the ideas you have cause behaviours. Now David says, so, so far we've got two sorts, the kind of ideas, the overwhelming majority of which don't cause any behavior at all. Some small proportion of your ideas actually cause you to do something different. Okay, Their idea you think, yes, I'll act on that, and you actually do, and you, there's some behavior that goes along with it. And then there's an even smaller proportion that the behavior happens and someone else notices it as well. If you're at home on your own and you go and get a glass of water, Well, then no one else is ever going to notice that. And it's an idea you had in your head. I feel like a glass of water. You go and get the glass of water. It's caused a behavior. So already it's a rare kind of idea, but no one has noticed it. So there is a small proportion of ideas where someone else does indeed notice. You turn up to the job interview and you've decided not to wear a tie, let's say, if you're a man, or you decide to turn up shabbily. So people have noticed this particular behavior in you. And so then we get to the even smaller proportion of ideas, ideas that you have that cause a behaviour, that are noticed by someone else, and then other people replicate them. So this is an exceedingly small fraction of all ideas that ever exist. If you're the first person to enact a particular kind of fashion, and someone else copies that fashion, that's very rare indeed. That's a very rare kind of idea indeed. So if you're a fashion designer and you're sitting at home and you think, I've got a design for a new hat. It's a strange looking tall and thin red top hat, but you never actually design it. Well, then that's an idea of the first kind. There might be an idea of the second kind where you decide, well, I'm actually going to design, create, build this strange hat, and you do. But then you destroy it because you think it's ugly. That's an idea of the second kind. And then there's the idea of the third kind where you think about it, design it, build it and keep it and wear it and everyone else notices, but they don't particularly like it. And so you realize that this is a bad idea, but at least they've noticed. And then there's the fourth kind of idea where it takes off as a fashion where other people decide to replicate that idea. They're interested in your new design for a hat. And so they all start wandering around in your new hat. That's the idea that is replicated by someone else. But as David says, the overwhelming majority of ideas disappear within a lifetime or less. One of our purposes here in this chapter is to try to tease out what are the reasons why some ideas do end up in that fourth category of getting replicated, affecting people's ideas, but persisting over time and causing a change in behaviour that actually has some longer-lasting effect on the culture as opposed to certain other ideas that don't have such an effect. And so back to the book and David Ryan's. a fundamental question in the study of cultures is what is it about a long-lived meme that gives it this exceptional ability to resist change throughout many replications? Another central to the theme of this book is when such memes do change, what are the conditions under which they can change for the better. The idea that cultures evolve is at least as old as that of evolution in biology. But most attempts to understand how they evolve have been based on misunderstandings of evolution. For example, the communist thinker Karl Marx believed that his theory of history was evolutionary because it spoke of a progression through historical stages determined by economic laws of motion but the real theory of evolution has nothing to do with predicting the attributes of organisms from those of its ancestors. Marx also thought that Darwin's theory of evolution provides a basis in natural science for the historical class struggle. He was comparing his idea of inherent conflict between socioeconomic classes with the supposed competition between biological species. Fascist ideologies such as Nazism likewise used garbled or inaccurate evolutionary ideas such as the survival of the fittest, to justify violence. But in fact, the competition in biological evolution is not just between different species, but between variants of genes within a species, which does not resemble the supposed class struggle at all. It can give rise to violence or other competition between species, but it can also produce cooperation, such as the symbiosis between flowers and insects, and all sorts of intricate combinations of the two. Pause there, my reflection. This is just an aside and stretches all the way back to chapters that spoke more directly about evolution. But this idea of the survival of the fittest, I don't think it's something that Darwin himself ever said. And it is actually a tautology of a kind. Because if we ask what is defined as the fittest, so if, if, if evolution by natural selection is the survival of the fittest, then what, what are the fittest? Well, the fittest by definition are those that survive. And so what then are the ones that survive? Well the ones only that are the fittest. So this doesn't really help anything. Um, It doesn't really help to explain what's going on in evolution by natural selection. The true explanation is of course to do with the capacity of genes to replicate and the circumstances under which they will replicate, the environments in which they find themselves are fittest, namely the environments where they're going to be replicated. And the reason they get replicated is because they're selfish. In other words, that is their sole objective, is to replicate themselves. Not because they consciously got that feeling of selfishness or anything like that, but because that essentially is what genes do. They try to have themselves replicated. That's their purpose in existence. Okay, and more substantively on this passage here is indeed there is... It's a form of scientism, isn't it? It's this idea that... Because something is true in science, because there well there's an element of truth within this, that obviously evolution by natural selection is a true theory. It's correct. It's an explanation of how biological organisms work. That does not mean it can be extrapolated into domains outside of biology. It's not applicable in those other domains. Marx thought it was, but that's incorrect. And the reason that it's incorrect is because the unit of selection is a gene, which he never knew anyway, but moreover, as David has said, it's just a metaphor. He was using a metaphor and taking the metaphor too seriously, comparing evolution of biological organisms to the way in which a state is going to evolve over time, to change over time. So he saw change going on in the natural world, and so he thought, therefore, change going on in society, the laws or the scientific principles that discover that 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 obtain in this particular area that are not predictive but are explanatory in this particular area are going to be explanatory in this particular area but worse than that uh, he thought that you could use this to predict things and as david quite rightly says there we although we have this good explanatory theory in biology to some extent there are gaps again go back to earlier chapters in the beginning of infinity all about this about how we do indeed have gaps in our understanding of evolution by natural selection. That's not to say it's false. There are gaps in every single scientific theory. It's not to say that they are uh, utterly false, I should say, in every single respect. They're not. They're our best understandings at the moment. However, one part of evolution by natural selection does indeed say that we cannot predict what the organisms are going to evolve into in the future. It doesn't allow us to do that kind of prediction. But Marx misunderstood uh, what evolution by natural selection was all about and thought that he could not only take it as a metaphor for how societies undergo change over time, but thought he could use it to predict what kind of change would occur over time. He thought that he could predict the growth of knowledge, which, as we know, is not possible. Okay, let's go back to the book, and David writes... Although Marx and the fascists assumed false theories of biological evolution, it is no accident that analogies between society and the biosphere are often associated with grim visions of society. The biosphere is a grim place. It is rife with plunder, deceit, conquest, enslavement, starvation and extermination. Hence, those who think that cultural evolution is like that end up either opposing it, advocating a static society, or condoning that kind of immoral behaviour as necessary or inevitable. Pause there. There's a lot to unpack there as well. And this is going to lead into the next chapter and the subsequent chapters and, and, and an underlying part of David Deutsch's philosophy, which is that the vision of the natural world that we are presented with sometimes today as being this clean, pristine provider of resources, a provider of our safety and our home and our comfort, okay, the natural world, is the ideal, and we come along and we pollute it and ruin it and destroy it, that this vision that we are sometimes presented with today is utterly false. And I guess at least to say something on the side of Marx here, at least he kind of understood that the biosphere was indeed a grim place and did entail all of these awful things like starvation and extermination, because that's true nature is red in tooth and claw. It is a cruel place. If you're concerned about the suffering of animals, then you should be concerned about trying to prevent predators from getting hold of their prey. But then, of course, if you do that, you're caught in a bind because that's going to cause the suffering of predators. So perhaps we should have meat farms for predators, and perhaps we should fence off all the predators from all of the prey. And Our task as human beings should be, if we want to prevent the suffering of other conscious creatures like animals, uh, literally imprison these animals or in some other way corral them so that they don't have much to do with one another. In fact, they should be kept individually separate from each one from another because male animals will fight amongst themselves. So if you're really interested in the supposed suffering of animals or concerned about bloodshed uh, among animals, then we should do what we can to protect animals from themselves because of all the harms that animals suffer. Surely the suffering at the hands of other animals is what we should be most concerned about because that is the worst form of suffering that any animal undergoes. Whatever the case, people might very well have these competing ideas in their mind. On the one hand, the natural environment is the ideal pristine place and that's what human civilization should be trying to preserve the natural environment, because it's the ideal. And yet, on the other hand, keep the competing idea in their mind that, in fact, evolution by natural selection and the animal kingdom is all about base concerns about avoiding starvation, about deceiving one another, and about killing your prey and avoiding the predators. So we've got two visions, <laughs> the natural world as being grim and awful and we don't want to be like that, and the natural world as being the pristine ideal towards or, that we need to protect. So Marx has used this, this analogy between the truth of the natural world as being an awful place. And in fact, as the worldview of David Deutsch would teach us, that in fact, it's the natural world that we have to protect ourselves from. It can be something as grandiose as the asteroid heading towards us, perfectly naturally, but we want to avoid that. And so artificially, we're going to have to create the knowledge to push it out of the way. Or it can be something more day-to-day, the thunderstorm that's going to happen, the hail that's going to fall from the sky, the cold temperatures that are going to come tonight. We need to protect ourselves from that. And we're going to need technology to do that. We're going to need houses, we're going to need air conditioning, we're going to need energy in order to protect ourselves from the worst aspects of the natural environment. The perfectly natural viruses and bacteria that are infecting our bodies in, in all sorts of awful ways we want to protect ourselves from. So nature is not the ideal that we wish to protect. It's not us that are a danger to nature. Or Insofar as we are a danger to nature, we are only a danger of nature in order to respond to the constant slings and arrows that nature is trying to assail us with. And so we need to do things to protect ourselves and indeed the life forms that we care about, our pets and other animals and so on and so forth, because hurricanes are as indiscriminately going to destroy human homes and buildings and lives as they will animal homes and lives. Okay, let's continue. And David writes, Arguments by analogy are fallacies. Almost any analogy between two things contains some grain of truth, but one cannot tell what that is until one has an independent explanation for what is analogous to what and why. The main danger in the biosphere culture analogy is that it encourages one to conceive of the human condition in a reductionist way, that obliterates the high-level distinctions that are essential for understanding it, such as those between mindless and creative, determinism and choice, right and wrong. Such distinctions are meaningless at the level of biology. Indeed, the analogy is sometimes drawn for the very purpose of debunking the common sense idea of human beings as causal agents with the ability to make moral choices and to create new knowledge for themselves. Pause there, my reflection. Uh, This um, is a contentious point, and I guess people who believe in a deterministic worldview when it comes to society must reject that. And so it is controversial in many, many ways. But to me, and I think to many people listening, it will seem like a deep truth about what human beings are. Human beings as causal agents, with the ability to make moral choices and to create new knowledge for themselves, all of those things kind of are tied up together. This capacity to create knowledge means that you're a causal agent, means that you are bringing into the world something that wasn't there before. And because it wasn't there before, now you have a wider array of choices to make. There is more choices available before you about what to do because you've literally brought into being, you've literally created a piece of knowledge that was not there before. Any discovery in physics which leads to a piece of new technology is something that allows us to therefore choose to use that technology in the future. My go-to example has been fission energy. This idea that prior to the advent of nuclear physics, prior to scientists fully understanding that there was energy, potential energy, held within the nucleus of all atoms, prior to us understanding that, that, that there was no possible way in which to conceive of how to get energy out of the nuclei of atoms. But once we knew there was energy in there, then the process could begin of trying to extract that energy in some way. It turned out by splitting the atom, we could do that. Firing neutrons at the atom could cause large nuclei to to split apart and to release lots and lots of energy. And that energy could be gathered together uh, because it comes out as heat energy. You put it into some water and it caused the water to boil and the water would turn into steam the steam can spin a turbine and the turbine can cause a generator to make electricity and so on and so forth. But prior to that knowledge being created about the nucleus, we didn't have the choice. We didn't have the choice about building a fission reactor or building a coal-fired power station. We now do have that choice. And so therefore it becomes a moral choice. Should we build this kind of Energy source or that kind of energy source. And of course, today that is a huge area of discussion. The lesson behind that is, of course, that there will always be new kinds of energy, new solutions to how to create energy that will come along. And so, any debate about, well, we shouldn't use that kind of energy because it could cause pollution or that kind of energy because it could lead to a dangerous accident, avoids the simple point that all kinds of energy are going to be transition kinds of energy. There are still places in the world where we are using wood in order to generate electricity. Rare though those places are, they do still exist. People have transitioned into coal, and from coal to nuclear, and so it will continue to happen. But in the meantime, artificially forcing everyone to use a particular kind of energy ignores the fact that if we want to make progress fast, we should probably use the cheapest, most efficient, highest energy density form of energy production that we can. Because it won't be too long in the future that someone will develop an even better, more efficient, more highly energy dense way of generating electricity. But that will be slowed down. That discovery, whatever it is, will be slowed down if you slow down progress. And that can be slowed down by artificially increasing the cost of things like knowledge knowledge production because you've slowed down the rate at which people can get information, and so on and so forth. That is a long discussion. Let's go back to the book, and David writes, As I shall explain, although biological and cultural evolution are described by the same underlying theory, the mechanisms of transmission, variation, and selection are all very different. That makes the resulting natural histories different too. There is no close cultural analogue of a species or of an organism or a cell or a sexual or asexual reproduction. Genes and memes are about as different as can be at the level of mechanisms and of outcomes. They are similar only at the lowest level of explanation, where they are both replicators that embody knowledge and are therefore conditioned by the same fundamental principles that determine the conditions under which knowledge can or cannot be preserved can or cannot improve. Okay, I'm skipping a little bit. Um, David talks about a very interesting perspective on jokes and where they come from, that some jokes might not indeed be created by anyone. They may very well have begun as a non-joke in some way, then became a slightly funny witty remark and eventually end up as a joke. If you're being chased by a bunch of rabid taxidermists, don't play dead. And of course this is not to say that jokes can't be invented, they are. Any stand-up comedian will tell you that. Uh, They work on crafting a joke and then testing it in front of audiences and allowing it to evolve over time based upon the critical feedback, namely the amount of laughs they're getting at their stand-up routine. yeah, and what David says on this, after me skipping a little bit, he says, you're right, "'People tell each other amusing stories, some fictional, some factual. "'They are not jokes, but some become memes. "'They are interesting enough for the listeners to retell them to other people. "'And some of those people retell them in turn. "'But they rarely recite them word for word, "'nor do they preserve every detail of the content. "'Hence an often retold story will come to exist in different versions.'" Some of these versions will be retold more often than others, in some cases because people find telling them amusing. When that is the main reason for retelling them, successive versions that remain in circulation will tend to be ever more amusing. So the conditions are there for evolution. Repeated cycles of imperfect copying of information, alternating with selection. Eventually the story becomes amusing enough to make people laugh and a fully fledged joke has evolved. It is conceivable that a joke could evolve through variations that were not intended to improve upon the funniness. For example, people who hear a story can mishear or misunderstand aspects of it or change it for pragmatic reasons. And in a small proportion of cases, by sheer luck, that will produce a funnier version of the story, which will then propagate better. If a joke has evolved in that way from a non-joke, it truly has no author. Another possibility is that most of the people who altered the amusing story on its way to becoming a joke designed their contributions, using creativity to make it funnier intentionally. In such cases, although the joke was indeed created by variation and selection, its funniness was the result of human creativity. In that case, it would be misleading to say that no one created it. It had many co-authors, each of whom contributed creative thought to the outcome. But it may still be that literally no one understands why the joke is as funny as it is, and hence no one could create another joke of similar quality at will. Pause there, my reflection. Yes, so there's lots of jokes that people tell each other like this. (laughs) I Like, um... Jerry Seinfeld's uh, famous routine he does in his television show. And Jerry talks about how a survey is published each year that talks about what people's greatest fear is. And typically, what comes in second is death. Death comes in second, which is surprising. What's first is public speaking. People are more afraid about public speaking. And Jerry quips that that means that at a funeral, the vast majority of people at the funeral would much rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. And so this kind of joke is something that is created by the stand-up comedian and which possibly goes through a small amount of refining, but at least there we can identify the author. Um, David goes on to write, although we do not know exactly how creativity works, we do know that it is itself an evolutionary process within individual brains, for it depends on conjecture, which is variation, and criticism for the purpose of selecting ideas. So somewhere inside brains, blind variations and selections are adding up to a creative thought at a higher level of emergence. Pause there. And so here we have some uh, ideas about creativity that we know so little about. The creativity in a human mind, how it operates. After all, once we do have a fully-fledged scientific theory of how creativity works, A fully-fledged philosophical theory of how knowledge is created, then we'll be able to program AGI, artificial general intelligence. But as yet, the repeated failures of people to produce artificial general intelligence is due entirely to misunderstanding the capacity of humans to create knowledge. And until we understand how it is that we do what we do, there's no way we're going to be able to create uh, an external device that can do what we do. That external device, by the way, would be a person. So it's kind of wrong to refer to such a thing as a thing <laughs> or as something other than a person. Anything that can create explanatory knowledge as a person, it will be able to understand the world around it. And it will have an open-ended capacity to improve itself and to improve its own knowledge. Which would also entail being able to create all the senses that we have, to have all the thoughts that we have, the motivations we have, values and emotions, and so on. Okay, I'm skipping a bit more here where David talks about how the idea of memes has been criticised over time, and he rejects that criticism and provides a number of reasons why. So I'm skipping beyond some of the criticisms and the discussion on jokes. And I'll go to the section where he starts to talk about the rules of grammar. And he writes, We say, I am learning to play the piano in British, in British English, but never I am learning to play the baseball. We know how to form such sentences correctly, but until we think about it, very few of us know that the inexplicit grammatical rule we are following even exists, let alone what it is. In American English, the rule is slightly different, so the phrase learning to play piano is acceptable. We may wonder why and guess that the British are more fond of the definite article. But again, that is not the explanation. In British English, a patient is in hospital, and in American English, in the hospital. I think even within uh, certain kinds of British English, to be be fair, uh, northern accents will sometimes eliminate the definite article where it should appear, where lots of other people think it should appear. For instance, someone might say, they're going upstairs uh, instead of going up the stairs. Uh, uh, So this this is a function of the way in which people speak over time, bleeding into rules of grammar, of course. So back to the book, David writes, The same is true of memes in general. They implicitly contain information that is not known to the holders, but which nevertheless causes the holders to behave alike. Hence, just as native English speakers may be mistaken about why they have said the in a given sentence, people enacting all sorts of other memes often give false explanations, even to themselves, of why they are behaving in that way. Like genes, all memes contain knowledge often inexplicit, of how to cause their own replication. This knowledge is encoded in strands of DNA or remembered by brains respectively. In both cases, the knowledge is adapted by causing itself to be replicated. It causes that more reliably than nearly all its variants do. In both cases, this adaptation is the outcome of alternating rounds of variation and selection. However, the logic of the copying mechanism is very different for genes and memes. In organisms that reproduce by dividing, either all the genes are copied into the next generation, or, if the individual fails to reproduce, none are. In sexual reproduction, a full complement of genes randomly chosen from both parents is copied, or none are. In all cases, the DNA duplication process is automatic. Genes are copied indiscriminately. One consequence is that some genes can be replicated for many generations without ever being expressed, causing any behaviour at all. Whether your parents ever broke a bone or not, genes for repairing bones will, barring unlikely mutations, be passed on to you and your descendants. The situation faced by memes is utterly different. Each meme has to be expressed as behaviour every time it is replicated. For it is that behaviour, and only that behaviour, given the environment created by all the other memes that affects the replication. That is because a recipient cannot see the representation of the meme in the holder's mind. A meme cannot be downloaded like a computer program. If it is not enacted, it will not be copied. Pause there, my reflection, or my just exposition on this point. So a meme is inside of your mind, represented in your mind in some way, but no one has access to that. This is why this so-called bucket theory of mind is so false. Popper talks about, Karl Popper talks about the bucket and the searchlight. And the bucket theory of mind is this idea that knowledge is somewhat more like a fluid that you can pour from one person into another's, from, from one mind to another. And so a teacher standing at the front of a class um, is able to transmit the knowledge to the students in the same way that pouring a fluid from one vessel into another is accomplished. Of course, this is utterly false. There's no way of inerrantly, faithfully, getting the knowledge from one mind into another. Instead, what has to happen is that the speaker, the person with the knowledge, the person with the memes, has to undertake some behavior. That behavior might include speaking, that behavior might include gesticulating, that behavior might include writing something on a board, um, so on and so forth. There are various behaviors that might go on But then the recipient of this idea, the the intended recipient, has to interpret the behavior. They're watching the behavior. They don't have direct access to the mind, to the memes, but only the behaviors, which they might replicate. And so if someone's speaking, giving an explanation, this is the knowledge, then the person hearing that is going to hear it and interpret it and try and understand it in their own mind such that at some later time, they will be able to express it as well but not in exactly the same words necessarily. They might not remember it by rote, but they will have an understanding, and their understanding might result in slightly different words being used to articulate this particular explanation. We're going to come to that as well. So as David says, a meme cannot be downloaded like a computer program. In other words, there's not this same sort of error correction that goes on inside of a computer program. There is a further level of interpretation that must go on, itself filled with errors. And David has a picture all about this, so I'll put the picture up and let's just read what he has to say about this. And he writes, the upshot of this is that memes necessarily become embodied in two different physical forms alternately, as memories in a brain and as behaviour. We can see there, so we've got a meme in brain number one, and that causes the behavior of this first person. The second person is observing that behavior from person number one and trying to interpret what that meme is. And so that meme will end up in that brain number two. Now, whether or not the meme in brain number two is exactly the same as the meme in brain number one is an open-ended question. It depends. Well, it depends upon the circumstance. Maybe it is faithfully reproduced, faithfully replicated, but it may also be replicated with some error, with some slight variation. We can still say that aspects of the meme or the memeplex or the broad idea has been replicated, but not in the same way that genes typically typically get replicated because the gene needs to be perfectly replicated or not replicated at all, or otherwise a mutation occurs. Whatever the case, the process here is of copying behavior in order to replicate the meme in the brain of the second person, which then causes behavior and so on as we see. David goes on to write, each of the two forms has to be copied, specifically translated into the other form in each meme generation. Meme generations are simply successive instances of copying to another individual. Technology can add further stages to a meme's life cycle. For instance, the behaviour may be to write something down, thus embodying the meme in a third physical form, which may later cause a person who reads it to enact other behaviour, which then causes the meme to appear in someone's brain. But all memes must have at least two physical forms. In contrast, for genes, the replicator exists in one physical form, the DNA strand of a germ cell. Even though it may be copied to other locations in the organism, translated into RNA and expressed as behaviour, none of those forms is a replicator. The idea that the behaviour might be a replicator is a form of Lamarckism, since it implies that behaviours that had been modified by circumstances would be inherited. Because of the alternating forms of a meme, it has to survive two different and potentially unrelated mechanisms of selection in every generation. The brain memory form has to cause the holder to enact the behavior, and the behavior form has to cause the new recipient to remember it and to enact it. So, for example, although religions prescribe behaviours such as educating one's children to adopt the religion, the mere intention to transmit a meme to one's children or anyone else is quite insufficient to make that happen. That is why the overwhelming majority of attempts to start a new religion fail, even if the founder members try hard to propagate it. In such cases, what has happened is that an idea that people have adopted has succeeded in causing them to enact various behaviours including ones intended to cause their children and others to do the same, but the behaviour has failed to cause the same idea to be stored in the minds of those recipients. The existence of long-lived religions is sometimes explained from the premise that children are gullible, or that they are easily frightened by tales of the supernatural, but that is not the explanation. The overwhelming majority of ideas simply do not have what it takes to persuade, or frighten, or cajole, or otherwise cause, children or anyone else into doing the same to other people. If establishing a faithfully replicating meme were that easy, the whole adult population in our society would be proficient at algebra, thanks to the efforts made to teach it to them when they were children. To be exact, they would all be proficient algebra teachers. To be a meme, an idea has to contain quite sophisticated knowledge of how to cause humans to do at least two independent things, assimilate the meme faithfully and enact it. That some memes can replicate themselves with great fidelity for many generations is a token of how much knowledge they contain. Pause there. My reflection and also the end of this episode. This is going to be a multi-episode treatment of this chapter because it is so dense and there are new ideas. David Deutsch has contributed to our understanding of memes in many interesting ways. Um, this exposition, this explanation that he has given about the way in which memes are transmitted is sometimes poorly understood. This idea that they need to first cause behaviours in people, which then cause others to gain that idea, to gain that meme inside of their mind, inside of their brain, and then to enact those behaviours as well, to pass them on. And so as he says there, um, certain ideas are not very good at, this. So teaching everyone at school algebra um, doesn't have the result of making everyone very good at algebra. There's something going wrong there. That Those ideas tend not to have what it takes. We don't have lots of people proficient at algebra. Moreover, we don't have lots of people proficient at algebra teaching out there because that teaching of algebra mean isn't particularly robust. What does seem to be robust... What is passed on from one year to the next is simply the existence of school. Uh, Coercive compulsory type schooling that exists in many different countries around the world. This idea that we all get our children into classrooms and sitting in rows. Um, This meme, this meme uh, is robust in many, many ways. It is resistant to change. It has existed for centuries and it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere soon. Our recent experiences of many schools closing down, and I had some thoughts that this will reveal, to some extent, to some people, the poverty of the schooling system as it exists right now. And that if everyone had their children at home, learning behind a computer screen, in a more free and perhaps fun for the student way, after all, they're at home, After all, they're probably talking to their their friends via the computer. And they're not being forced to turn up to lessons at a particular time in a particular place. They have more time during the day. Perhaps those students, those parents, perhaps even the teachers would start to think there's a better way of doing things. Well, in fact, it turns out that that's not the case. (laughs) That, That many, many people in the system seem to revert back as soon as possible to going back into the classroom. Uh, And so this meme of this is the way in which we teach our young people, we treat young people, is resistant to change for reasons that I won't get into now. But uh, clearly there is um, this idea that causes behaviour of turning up to school, of encouraging people to go to school, of indeed enforcing the, 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 um, the attendance at school from people. Um, uh, These ideas causing these behaviours seem to have no end in sight at the moment, and some people see them as very virtuous, and of course that's one reason that they would propagate is because we see that as an extremely virtuous thing. Wrong, though, that might be for some of us to think. Okay. Uh, until next time, uh, when we move on to more about memes, uh, you can perhaps look forward to some of my other shorter, um, bite-sized introductions to uh, Karl Popper and David Deutsch. Until then, thank you. Thank you once more to my Patreons. I've um, I've gotten a couple more Patreons. I've lost a couple of Patreons. The, the numbers seem to go up and down, but uh, there's a gradual gradual increase, and that's lovely to see. And I'm very grateful to anyone who wishes, wishes to contribute to Topcast. If you're watching this on YouTube then you may not be aware that there are additional episodes that are audio only if you search for Topcast, T-O-K-C-A-S-T, on Apple, iTunes, or wherever else you get your Topcast, or wherever else you get your podcast. On the other hand, if you're an audio only listener, then you may not be aware there is a YouTube version of this which has some visuals, and for some episodes more than others, the visuals, I think, help some of the explanations. Once more, Thank you again for any support at all on Patreon or PayPal and links to those are on my website, www.bretthall.com. Thanks again and bye-bye.